In Matthew 4, 4, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, as we'll begin to look at this morning, verses 18 through 22, which serve as a thrilling illustration of the truth that we briefly introduced and touched on the last time in our study of this book. If you recall, Peter is giving us in this letter of 1 Peter a sort of basic primer on what essential Christianity really looks like when it's lived out in this world. What basic Christianity really is. And Peter lets us know right off the bat that Christianity, that is, having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, all of that begins with a little thing called being born again, as he mentions in chapter 1, verse 3, of being pushed by God's mercy and power into a new experience, one of spiritual life, where before there was spiritual death. And though this might seem obvious to some of you who have been exposed to the Bible for any length of time, this simple truth really is quite significant, and we must never lose sight of it. See, the Christian life does not begin with our work or our effort or our actions. The Christian life begins with God's work and God's power and God's actions. This is the good news of God and what He does for sinners in need. The story of the gospel is not a record of man seeing God in all of his glory and striving to work our way up to him. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. The story of the gospel is a record of God seeing man in all our sin and shame and in rich compassion and mercy coming down to save us. Peter makes this obvious by starting off his entire letter on basic Christianity with a presentation in chapter 1, verse 3 of the new birth, of how God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace we have been saved. He causes us by his miraculous power to be born again. So that is what Christianity is, and we all need to remember that. Christianity is not just another religion of human works. Christianity is a celebration of a divine miracle that God has performed on behalf of his people. And that divine miracle of the new birth, once given by God, it supernaturally transforms everything about us. It dramatically transforms how we as Christians and followers of Jesus relate to God, how we relate to other followers and believers in Jesus Christ, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to the broader world around us. Most recently in our study, Peter has been unfolding how being born again to spiritual life in Christ causes us to relate differently to the world around us, namely, and fundamentally, it causes us to relate to the world around us evangelistically. As those who through the new birth and through faith in Jesus Christ have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we will naturally want others to experience that saving goodness also. And so how do we do that? as elect exiles on a daily basis? How do we underline the gospel that we declare rather than undermine it? How do we picture the Jesus that we're proclaiming? Peter has been showing us how from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way into chapter 3, verse 17, which we took our time on, in which Peter outlined dramatically for us how to be subject, how to honor everyone, how to love the brotherhood, and how to fear God. 
Those are four ways that we can demonstrate to others the saving goodness of the Lord. Those are four ways that we can lay down opportunities for evangelism rather than obstacles to evangelism every single day. It's by being subject properly to our governing authorities. It's by honoring everyone we come in contact with. It's by loving the brotherhood with humility and tenderness of heart. And it's by fearing God more than we fear man. This is how we can be about evangelism every single day, no matter where we are, at work, at home, at play. And so... You know what all those four actions that we've taken a long time looking at, how it can all be summarized by? It can all be summarized as looking to and following after Jesus. It really can be. That's what Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 21, if you remember, when he wrote, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then Peter outlines for us, be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. You see, the calls to do all those things is simply a call to follow Jesus. Jesus showed proper subjection to his authorities. Jesus extended honor to everyone he interacted with. Jesus loved his people to the uttermost. And Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord and did not fear man. And it is because Jesus did so that you and I are saved. And so for the sake of the lost and for the needy world around us, we who have been born again in Christ Jesus are simply being called on to follow in his steps, to follow after him, to keep him first of all. And that's the Christian life. It's coming to Jesus and it's following after him, following Jesus in everything we do because he has the words and he is the way of eternal life. And you know what? One of the realities that Peter's already been introducing to us, but he's going to start majoring on it now, is one of the realities of following after Jesus and finding salvation in him is that we're also going to follow, we're also going to find suffering in this life. Think about it. We're called as elect exiles to follow after Jesus on our way to glory. But what did Christ's own path to glory look like? Peter's already showed us back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. It looks like being mocked. It looks like being reviled. It looks like suffering. In Jesus' case, it looked like dying. Christ's path to glory involved the cross before the crown. And so it is for all those who follow after him. As Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it ever hated you. In other words, being hated by the very world that you're trying to reach with the gospel and the goodness of the Lord, that comes with following Jesus. And Peter actually pointed this out back in chapter 3, verse 16, the last time we were in this study. Peter writes, if you look at it, chapter 3, verse 16, Peter writes that we ought to maintain a good conscience. Why? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. May be put to shame. Notice, Peter doesn't say if you are slandered or if you're reviled. He says when you're slandered and when you're reviled. For Peter, it's a done deal. There's no question in his mind, if you're following after Jesus, these things are going to happen. As 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus are going to face persecution. So, you have to ask yourself this question then. If that's the case, then why in the world would anyone ever want to follow Jesus? If following Jesus always leads to suffering. 
Well, Peter told us why in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, because it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. Right? That's why you should follow Jesus, no matter the consequences, because it is better. And you and I, if we're going to shine like lights in this world for the glory of Christ, then we need to be absolutely convinced of this reality, that it is always better to suffer with Christ than to sin alongside this world. It's always better to follow God's principles rather than pragmatism. It's always better to choose Christ rather than comfort. It's always better to suffer than to sin. You say, okay, but why? If the effectiveness of my everyday evangelism is depending on me becoming thoroughly convinced of this fact, then I need to know why. Why is it better to suffer alongside Jesus than to sin alongside this world? Peter's going to Tell us why, here in verses 18 through 22 of this chapter. And this is why I love Scripture, because Scripture loves the thinking man. Because God appreciates our honest questionings, and he directly addresses them in his word. Why is it always better to follow principles rather than pragmatism? Why is it always better to choose Christ rather than comfort? Why is it always better to suffer alongside Jesus than to sin alongside this world? Peter's going to show us it's because when we follow closely after Jesus, we partake in and we share in four glorious realities that are true of Jesus. They are true of Christ. They become true of us as well as we follow after him. So first, when we follow closely after Jesus, we share in the purpose of Christ's suffering. That's in verse 18. Second, we share in the power of Christ's spirit. That's in verses 19 through 20. Third, we share in the picture of Christ's salvation in verse 21. And then fourth, we share in the preeminence of Christ's splendor in verse 22. This is our glorious share in Christ. And this is why it is always better to suffer alongside Jesus than to succumb to sin alongside the world. It's because as we follow closely after Jesus, we begin to share in the purpose of Christ's suffering, the power of Christ's spirit, the picture of Christ's salvation, and the preeminence of Christ's splendor. And sin cannot offer you that. We begin to share more deeply in Jesus. And that is always far, far better. So these are, there, there are glorious truths ahead of us. I'll warn you in advance for future weeks, also some of the hardest verses to interpret, but some of the most glorious truths when you come to understand them. And we're only going to be able to look at just the first of these truths today in verse 18. So let's begin. If you would please stand with me out of reverence for God's word as I read this morning's passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. For Christ, let me read verse 17 for context. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. This is the word of God whose precepts he has commanded us to keep diligently. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today, and I thank you for how it reveals to us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning of his gloriously good work on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the path that Jesus tread that it went through suffering, it went through reviling, so that it would lead to salvation and glory for all those who trust in him. Help us, Father, to embrace Christ and to follow closely after him so that we might experience the blessed goodness of participating in his life in every way. Give us grace, Father, to hear your word and to obey today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So why is it always better to suffer alongside Jesus rather than succumb to pragmatism or give in to comfort or to sin alongside this world? It's because when we follow closely after Jesus, we begin to partake in and we share in the purpose of Christ's suffering. That's in verse 18 where Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So catch the train of thought here between verse 17 and 18. Immediately after Peter asserts that it is better to suffer in doing good than to sin, he then writes, for Christ also suffered. In other words, Christ is the ultimate example and proof to us of why it is better to suffer for God than to sin. Look to Jesus. And Peter gives here a greater than, less than argument. If it was better for Christ to suffer rather than to sin, then surely it is better for us to suffer rather than to sin also. In other words, if doing good, no matter the cost, ended up being better for Jesus, who suffered infinitely more than you and I could ever possibly imagine then surely doing good, no matter the cost, will end up being better for us. Who will suffer infinitely less than anything that Jesus ever faced? As Hebrews 12 verse 4 so bluntly puts it, you and I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. And that, by the way, is understating the point. I want you to just imagine for a brief moment the suffering that Jesus went to so that we can understand the significance of how even that suffering led to something better for Christ. Imagine for a brief moment all that Jesus endured and all that he suffered. I'm not even going to do justice to it this morning. But first consider that he who is worshipped as the king of glory by holy angels was mocked as the king of Jews by sinful men. He who wears the incorruptible crown of life and righteousness and joy and glory, he bore on his brow a crown of thorns in mockery 
He who walks right now on seas of glass and streets of gold, tread on a dirt, on a path of dirt and stone that became sprinkled with his own blood. He whose very throne flows out a river of life in paradise carried his cross to the place of the skull. He who eternally delights only in righteousness and holiness with his Father for all of eternity took upon himself in one horrific moment the total deluge of our sins and iniquities. The guilt of it all. He who enjoyed the Father's communion and love for all eternity cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me beneath God's wrath? He who is the source of all heaven's blessings became the sin in that moment of all our sin's curse. And he whose very words breathed into Adam the breath of life in every human sense then called out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And he who was the author of life, who is the author of life, died. No one has ever gone as far as Jesus did from where he was to where he went. And no one has ever suffered as much as Jesus has suffered. Your sufferings, I'm sorry to put this in eternal perspective, don't touch the scale of what Christ faced. It was so much pressure, so much pain, so much suffering, that just the very thought of what he would have to go through nearly broke him in the Garden of Gethsemane causing strange blood to flow from his pores and strange prayers to come out of his lips. Jesus suffered more than you and I will ever imagine, though we will have all eternity to wonder in awe over it. But listen, even with Jesus, the blessings that came from doing good no matter the cost far outweighed all the sufferings that accompanied it. And that's how we can know that it's always better to suffer with Jesus than to sin with this world because we have Jesus as our example. If it was better for him who endured greater suffering than we have, will ever face, then surely it is better for us. Because we have Jesus as our example. And just like Peter taught back in chapter 2, verse 21, when we join Jesus on this path of life and when we follow in his footsteps, we experience what he experienced. We experience the bad, yes, but we also experience the good, the overwhelming good. And that's what Peter wants to show us here. It's always better to do good no matter the cost. It's always better to suffer rather than to sin because as verse 18 shows us, when we follow closely after Jesus, we partake in and we share in first the glorious purpose of Christ's suffering, which was to bring sinners to God. Believer, take heart. Our suffering has a purpose. Just that one thought ought to be an immense encouragement for you today. Our suffering has a purpose in the plan of God. I also need to say, if you're outside of Christ, if you don't repent, you can't say the same thing. 
Your suffering now will only lead to more suffering later, but for those of us who are born again in Christ Jesus, our pain has a purpose, the very purpose revealed through Christ's own suffering, and we're going to see it was to bring sinners to God. So Peter writes, For Christ also suffered for sins. And starting right now, Peter begins outlining for us five major truths regarding Christ's death that you and I ought to meditate on this morning as an encouragement when we go through hard times and suffering. And by the way, back in verse 15, if you remember, Peter says that we should be able to give intelligent answers for why we hope and believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Well, here are some of the most essential answers. Why do we hope in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our salvation? Why don't we hope in something else? Five reasons. We trust and we hope in Christ first because Christ's death on the cross satisfies our penalty. First, it satisfies our penalty. It says Christ also suffered once. Why? What does it say? For sins. For sins. That's why Jesus died. He died for sins. Those things that we think, say, or do that breaks God's commandments and that breaks God's heart. Jesus died for those sins. You say, well, why? Because as Romans 6.23 says, and God has made clear ever since the beginning of time, the wages of sin is death. You say, well, why doesn't God overlook sin? Well, he doesn't overlook sin because if he overlooked sin, he would no longer be holy and just and righteous. A holy and righteous and just God cannot endure anything less than holy and righteous and just. And so every sin must be addressed by God if he is to be good. And so he warns us ever since the beginning of time that the wages of sin is death. What did he warn Adam and Eve of? Do you remember? He said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. Die. And that's true. The moment that we sin, it separates us from God. Just like with Adam and Eve, they were cast out of the garden. And if we do not repent and have our sins dealt with, then we will be cast out of God's gracious presence forever. The wages of sin is death. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Though culture changes its message, God has not. There is a thing called sin. There is a consequence to sin of eternal death. The infinite penalty for our infinite sins against an infinite God must be addressed. The wages of sin is death. And that's helpful to remember when we look at the world around us as we're surrounded by pain and suffering and things that don't seem right. I want you to remember that God created a perfect world, but the wages of sin is death. Whenever you see death, sin is always present there. You see, well, wait. When I look to Jesus, though, I see death. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus sinned if I see death there? No. So if Jesus died for sins and he had no sin, then for whose sin did he die? The answer is for yours and for mine. As Hebrews 9.22 in the entire Old Testament teaches, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as Romans 8 verse 3 states, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Sin demands a payment of death that must be satisfied. And so Jesus Christ came and he died in order to provide an offering for our sin. And now everyone who comes under the hearing of the gospel is faced with a choice. Even this morning where you're sitting, you're faced with a choice. Will I pay for the penalty of my sins for all eternity in hell? Or through faith in Christ, 
has he done that work for me on the cross? Christ's death satisfies our penalty. Second, Christ's suffering and Christ's death satisfies our problem. It solves our problem. Peter writes this. Christ also suffered how many times? It says once for sins. Don't overlook that one word. Jesus died once for sins. Hopox in the Greek, and it means that Christ's one death is perpetually valid and effective, never needing repetition, forever sufficient for all time. That, ladies and gentlemen, solves our problem. Because you see, our problem is not just that we sinned, past tense. Our problem is that we're sinners who keep on sinning, even into the present. We are addicts, addicts. We are absolutely enslaved to the destructive temptations of sin. And just any old sacrifice for our sins would never do to cleanse us from that addiction. You see this throughout the Old Testament. In Jewish history, over a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed for sins at Passover every single year. Only to be repeated year after year after year after year after year. And then Jesus dies once and it was sufficient for all of our sins for all time. The author of Hebrews loves this truth, and if you've come out of Roman Catholicism, you'll love it too. In contrast to their teaching that says that every time communion is offered, which we'll be observing today, the sacrifice of Jesus is being offered all over again, Hebrews 7.27 says this of Christ, He has no need, like those high priests of old, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. On the cross. Again, Hebrews 9, 25 through 26 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every single year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away all sin by the sacrifice singular of himself. And finally, Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not at the communion table, and not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He suffered once for sins, never to be repeated. Once for all sins, for all time, for all who believe. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Christ's death satisfies our penalty. Christ's death solves our ongoing problem. Next, Christ's death swaps our position. What glorious truth Peter writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins. How? The righteous for the unrighteous. In short, Christ took our place so that we could take his He took the place of sinners so that we could take the place of the only begotten Son of God. I mean, wonder of wonders, this is the glory of the gospel. Christ died. He's the righteous one, not you. He's the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. The sinless for the sinful. 
The call of the gospel is not get your life straightened out so you can come to God. The call of the gospel is your life will never be straightened out. Come to God who the righteous for the unrighteous died to save you. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the sinful, sinless for the sinful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so well. Christ, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's what Peter taught back in chapter 2, verse 24. If you recall, when he wrote, Christ himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or again, as Peter taught in Acts 3, 14 through 15, but you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murder to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. In other words, he was accusing the Jewish crowd and he said, you let a murderer go free and you killed the author of life. Guess what? That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Where Christ takes the penalty for the sinner in their place. Jesus took the judgment that belonged to us. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. He took our penalty. And in the great exchange of the gospel, Christ takes our judgment and we take his righteousness. And that's the good news. I mean, that's the benefit of being united to Christ's suffering death by faith. It swaps our position. God treated Jesus as if he lived my life so that, I, so that he might treat me as if I lived Christ's. And that leads to the next glorious truth of Christ's death, the glorious purpose of his suffering, which Peter's been driving towards in verse 18 right up to this point, where fourth, Christ's suffering death secures our place. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And what was the purpose of Christ's suffering? It was so that he might bring us to God. This is the whole purpose that Peter's been building up to as he tries to give purpose to the life of those suffering elect exiles. He says, look to Jesus. What purpose was there in his suffering? You who are one with him, that purpose belongs to you as well. Jesus suffered and died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins so that he might bring us to God. He took all of our sins upon himself. He endured God's wrath in our place and he opened up a way, the only way to God. He blew open the Holy of Holies so that we could all have immediate access to God in his righteousness. Now that word to bring us to in the Greek is related to a term that describes the person who would grant you access to a king. So if you wanted to see a king... You couldn't just walk right off into his throne room. You'd have to secure an interview through the person in charge before you could be ushered into the king's presence. That's Jesus. He is the person in charge who secures you access to God whenever. That's, as Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one that grants you access. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to the Father and the only one who can secure a position before you, before you, before God. As Hebrews 5 verse 2 says, through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, because of Jesus and his suffering, we now stand in a position of continual, unshakable grace before God. And that's the main applicational point that Peter wants us to see here first. 
Even suffering has a redemptive purpose when you are one with Christ. Even suffering has a redemptive purpose if you are suffering in the footsteps of Christ for doing what is good. We see that in Jesus. Because he suffered, we were led to God. And though we don't suffer, not at all in the same way Christ did, nevertheless, our suffering in the province of God might just be the tool that he uses in this life to bring someone to himself also. In other words, even your suffering has an evangelistic purpose to it. And that's why Peter can say that it is better to suffer than to sin because even suffering for a Christian has an evangelistic purpose. We already saw this back in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, when Peter wrote, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's exactly what Peter's saying here. If Christ's suffering was used to lead us to God, then remember, as those who belong to Christ Jesus, our suffering might be used to lead others to God also. So this is why we hope in Christ. It's because Christ's death satisfies our penalty. It solves our ongoing problem. It swaps our position. And it secures our place. And then finally, it shows our power. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And this is the nature of Christ's death. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now there's more that could be said about that phrase that we'll address next week with various interpretations before this morning. I just want to interpret it the way I believe is best, and that is by saying that I believe this is describing Christ's death and his subsequent resurrection. When he was put to death in the flesh, that simply means Jesus really died on the cross. His physical life ceased. As Hebrews 2.9 says, he tasted death for every man. He really died. He really died. And by the way, that phrase being put to death in the Greek really speaks to the process of Jesus' death, which lets us know that the next phrase speaks to the process of Jesus being made alive. He was made alive in the Spirit. That's the process of Jesus' resurrection. It is in the Spirit, through the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that, God, that Jesus was made alive. That's exactly what Romans 1 verse 4 says, when Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was made alive in the Spirit. So here's the basic point. Even though Jesus was dead in the flesh, he was still alive in the Spirit in three days. He was made alive in the Spirit. You cannot kill the eternal Son. As Peter said over in Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, his life could endure death, not like ours. As Hebrews 7.16 says, Christ possessed the power of an indestructible life, and so he was made alive in the Spirit. And think about it, if Christ's Spirit is so indestructibly powerful that it can raise him from the dead, just think, that same power dwells in us. As Romans 8.11 teaches, the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells where? In you. I can't talk to someone I don't know about Jesus Christ. I can't show proper subjection to my authorities. I can't love my brothers and sisters in Christ like God tells me to. I can't forgive them for that sin and injustice they committed against me. I can't conquer this fear of man. I can't beat this sin that's chained me down. I can't face this. Oh, yes, you can. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in 
you. That's real power. And as Peter's about to teach, I believe in the next few verses, the same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spiritual power that is his work in us believers right now to lead the lost to Jesus Christ. Just like in Noah's day, where even in the midst of that perverse generation, there were still eight souls that made it out alive. And if that can happen in Noah's day, that can happen today. God can give you power spiritual power to reach the lost around you for Jesus Christ by your words and by your living. He can do it. It's the same power, the same potential. So, (laughs) why do we trust in Christ for our salvation? And why do we hope in Christ for the salvation of the lost? It's because Christ's death satisfies our penalty solves our problem, swaps our position, secures our place, and shows our power, the very power of Christ's own spirit working in us. But we'll have to look at that more next week. But this is why it is better to suffer alongside Jesus than to sin alongside the world. It's because as followers of Christ, we get to share in the same purpose of Christ's suffering, and that is to bring others to God Your temporal suffering as a believer in this life may well be the tool that God is using, that he wants you to use to bring someone to himself eternally. And if that is the case, then then it's worth it, isn't it? It is worth it. It is better. All the suffering of this present world will be worth it all if we can be used by God just to turn aside one soul from hell and into the saving arms of Jesus. For Christ also suffered, and it was better. So let that be our perspective. It is better to do good no matter the cost. It is better to choose Christ rather than comfort. It's better to suffer rather than to sin because it is then and only then that we share in the purpose of Christ's suffering which is to bring sinners to God. We'll have to look at the other three reasons next week as to why it's better to suffer alongside Jesus than to sin alongside this world. But for now, have you trusted in this Savior? Or are you trusting in your own works and merit to gain acceptance before God? He's already declared at the cross that is impossible. He already sent the righteous one to die for the unrighteous. This morning I call on you if you have not done so this morning. If you have not done so yet. To trust in what Christ has done on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and find absolute acceptance and forgiveness and salvation in Him and in Him alone. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Do so this morning. Right where you're seated, call out to God and He will save you. And then second, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, That's your glorious share in Christ. And we ought to celebrate it, don't you think? And that's exactly what we get to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. 
Thank you for reminding us of the glories of Jesus Christ. Thank you that neither did he sin, neither was there ever deceit found in his mouth. He was the pure and righteous one. He is the holy one, matchless, undefiled, spotless, pure. And we thank you that he took the penalty the guilt of our sin upon himself so that we for all of eternity could find in him the grace that belongs only to him. I thank you that he, the just one, died for the unjust. And Father, may we give him the honor and the glory the praise for what he has done by our words this week as we get to share the good news with those who are lost and by our lives as we get to demonstrate his saving goodness that he showered upon us. Give us grace to do so, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.